So uh, we are going through a book, as you know, if you don't have it this morning or you haven't read it, it's okay. Uh, we're kind of using Bob Coughlin's True Worshippers as a jumping off point uh, for discussion and, and related teaching. It's a really, really great book, a really good resource. The chapters are short, but very profound and have a lot to tell us about worship. And so this week, the chapter uh, was really about the call to worship. Not a call that we generate, not a call that we uh, put forward, but a call that God has for us to respond to who he is and to come forward and step forward in worship and receive who he is in fullness. Worship is how we do that. So as we get started, I kind of wanted to, to uh, say this as, as our, my introduction. That's a very clunky way of saying here's my introduction. This is, <laughs> this is where we're going. So uh, my wife and I are expecting a baby boy in about five weeks. All right. I mean, thank you for the applause. That's uh, you know, okay. I'm gonna stop there before I say anything inappropriate. Thank you for your applause. My wife deserves all of it. She's carrying Leland James. Um, you know, um, my dad's from Mexico, and Jen's half Filipino, and there is no ethnicity in the names of our boy or our girl. <laughs> anyway, uh, so our son will be here in, in four and a half short weeks. Uh, we're super excited about that. And it's got us thinking uh, about all the memories we have uh, with Abby, who's about to turn five in April. And Abby uh, is crazy, she's rambunctious, all those things, but one of my favorite memories was just hearing her say, I love you, for the first time. And really like, with a sense of meaning. And then you couldn't get enough of it. So I still, to this day, I'll drive in the car, and her car seat's behind me, I'll reach my hand back as far as I can just so she can hold my hand for a little bit. And so I don't care how old she is or how awkward it gets, I'm still gonna keep doing that. <laughs> but just that, that word of I love you. Now that, what's so important about this is that uh, that phrase, I love you, it resonates because it's a response to relationship, right? Um, it wasn't just enough for Abby to say those words, she meant those words and flowed out of identity. But the beauty of it is that before she knew how to respond, or even what those words meant, the relationship already existed. I showed her who I was. I was her father. I was raising her. I was providing for her. I was caring for her. I was trying not to bump her head in the hallway. Little things like that. Like I showed her who I was before she could ever respond. And it's more than just words because it recognizes relationship and it recognizes uh, identity. So for example, if you have a, uh, let's say you have a stranger's child come up to you and say, I love you. Is it gonna resonate the same way? Probably not. You say, whose kid is this? Right? It's a little strange because there's no identity or relationship there. So it has to be more than words. It has to be word and deed that flows out of identity and relationship. This is what worship is. This is what Bob Coughlin is telling us in his chapter, that worship flows out of identity and relationship. And when we get those two things correct, worship is true and it's honoring and it's glorifying. We were and are called to worship by the revelation of God's name. God calls us forward to tell us who he is, but the relationship exists there even before he calls us by name. He is God and we are not. He is creator and we are formed. That relationship exists before we recognize that it's there. Look at Genesis uh, 1, verse 26 through 29. God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the livestock, all the earth, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
is this is Genesis 1 verse 26, right? That the creation has already been unfolding when man enters into the picture, or when God calls him out into the picture. This relationship of creator and creation is already there. And so God calls him forward. He creates Adam, which literally means from the dirt. Uh, he creates him mid-creation narrative. And what does he do when he creates him? Verse 28, God blesses him, and then he commands him. God says to him, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And after he commands him, he enables him. Verse 29, God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, every tree with seed its fruit, you shall have them for food. So he establishes relationship based on identity. You are my creation. Then he blesses us, he commands us, and he enables us. This is the flow of creation, of identity, but it's also the flow of worship. God is in the business of telling us who he is and what he desires for us. This has always been the case in life and in worship. We respond well, directly correlative to what we know about God and his desire in that design. The more you know about God, the more you receive who he is, the stronger your worship is. It's not a formula, it's not a transaction, it's just truth. You respond better the more you know someone in relationship, right? So I love you, I love pizza. I don't have a relationship with pizza like I do with my wife when I say I love you. It means something different because I know her on a much deeper scale than I do pizza, although I know pizza very well, just to establish that. You see, this is who God is. He desires for us, his creation, to be purposed, to be blessed, and to be commanded. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, this is in our worship handbook. I don't know if anybody still looks at that thing. It's a good thing. Uh, it's arguably one of the most important passages of worship in the whole Bible. It's called the Shema. And he says uh, this, God says this to his people. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. There's so many things established in this very short passage. For one, God is calling a people, right? Just as he created man and woman as his first creation, as humanity, he's also calling a people, brothers and sisters, mothers, fathers, children, relatives, friends. He's calling a group of people together to worship. This is a verse about worship. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. There's a lot of details to get in, into there, but suffice it for the time we have today to say that this word that Moses is delivering is outward movement. He's saying love the Lord your God with all your heart. That's your inner being. It's a word in Hebrew that they would have understood to be who you are inside. Soul was a word that meant your physical body. Your, your soul meant like how, how do you respond to worship? What do we sing in a lot of our songs? I lift my hands, which is so funny on Sunday morning because people will sing it, but they won't actually lift their hands. I'm like, are you lying? I'm just kidding. <laughs> and then with all your might, that word might, it was kind of like, um, it, it's, it's a different word in Hebrew, but it, it essentially means resources, everything God's entrusted you with. So we move from inner person, outer person, included, full being, outward, it's everything God's blessed you with. What he's calling his people to is a lifestyle of love in every aspect of who they are. The God who is one, who is total, who is everything of all things, this is the God who commands us to love him in the same way. The best way to understand this is uh, a little bit like a marriage ceremony. 
Now, uh, how many people in here are married? Or engaged, if you're engaged, you can raise your hand. Who's most recently engaged? Seth, right? You proposed to Jody. What did you ask her? I said, uh, will you marry me? You said, well, actually, you said, like, but yes, you did say, I was there. <laughs> yes, you asked her to marry you, right? And so it was, it was a question, but it was a question with some ramifications. If she says no, I mean, the ramification is sadness. But if she says yes, what does that mean? It means she agrees to a lifestyle, right? There's, there's a implicit in that yes is walking the yes out. Um, think of God's calling for us to worship as his people as a marriage proposal. Here are the terms of agreement. Uh, Catherine Green McCrae, if you want to read a great book, um, she just wrote a book on Lent. The name escapes me, but I'll add it to the podcast later with a different voice. Here's the name. Anyway, she, she says that this marriage proposal concept is like blessing as command. The Lord says, I have designed you for great things. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to keep you. I'm going to take care of you. This is how you say yes. The fear of the Lord was actually a walking out. It was faith, but it was fidelity. It was walking out the lifestyle, obedience to God's command and God's direction. If Seth proposed to Jody and she said yes in word only and didn't live like a fiance, that's infidelity. If she did it only in thought, if she just said yes and didn't tell him, then that's nothing. That's nebulous. It's mysterious. It never finds activity. If she did it in action only, checking all the boxes of being his fiance but not actually internalizing it or even feeling it, then that's empty symbolism. God wants all of it. He wants our yes to be in word, in thought, and in deed. And this is ultimately fulfilling. It's ultimately for our benefit. Psalm 119, 175, uh, he, the psalmist cries out, let my soul live and praise you and let your rules help me. He recognizes that implicit in this proposal, in this blessing as command, that there is fulfillment. That there is help, that there is guidance. Psalm 63 says this, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. I will respond to knowing who you are in your love with greater and greater worship and greater and greater praise. I will bless you as long as I live in your name. I will lift up my hands. Psalm 84.4, blessed are those who dwell in your house ever singing your praise. You don't just wander into someone's house. You are invited you don't just dwell unless somebody invites you to dwell there. And those who dwell are always singing his praises. Verse 10, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. So it's a recognition that this invitation to respond to God's worship is ultimately for our benefit. But it is with purpose. Again, this is why I would say it's a blessing as command. Isaiah 43, verse 7, everyone who is called by my name is created for glory. They're formed and made for purpose. So just as God does with Adam and Eve, he forms us for purpose. And that purpose is to love him, to proclaim him, to walk out who he is. All this is important. And I'm going to put this up there for a second so you can see. Because we need to start with this. God is not absent or vague. He reveals himself to his people. And he continues to reveal himself to the listening and the hungry. So this morning, those are things to think about. Are you listening? Are you hungry? Have you allowed yourself to be satisfied with the initial revelation that there is a God, that you are not that God, that he calls you to life? And then have you stopped on the journey? 
Second thing we'll talk about is what journey is. It's, it's a pilgrimage. We're walking. We're ascending the hill of the Lord as Jesus leads us up to the Father. Some of us have stopped, right? And we've been distracted. And we've uh, quit being hungry, right? Steve Jobs, that was the one thing he would always put at, at Apple, stay hungry, right? And, and that dude, like, he wore a turtleneck. So, I mean, he stopped being hungry about fashion. But anyway, like, I don't know why I said that. Anyway, <laughs> we've got to be hungry. We've got to pursue because God is honoring in revealing more of who he is to us as we do those things. Let's continue. Okay, so God wants to reveal who he is. What is he telling us about worship? Here's my question. So we've all heard this. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. How does God draw near to us? How does that process even begin? We talked about this last week, right? The woman at the well. Jesus says, true worshipers worship in spirit. spirit and truth, right? This is a Trinitarian statement. True worshipers worship the Father by spirit and truth. That we have to get all of who he has revealed himself to be right. And, and that's ultimately to our blessing, our benefit, our empowerment. And we know that this process starts with the spirit. That the spirit draws us to the truth and that the truth walks us to the Father. The spirit is speaking to us now in the word. Right, the word in front of you, all scripture is God breathed. The spirit has ordained this word and this word reveals the word made flesh, Jesus, who is the ultimate revelation of who God is. He directs our response in worship to the father. The spirit speaks the word of God to reveal the word of God so that we might respond to the words of God. It's invitational revelation. I know that's a lot of big words, but think of it that way. It's invitational revelation. The words are there speaking to us. Here's our next important thing. I'll put this on there for us. Language is the sign and currency of relationship. Language, words, like these things matter because they give body to the inner life. C.S. Lewis uh, talks about poetry. He says poetry is important because it gives body to what was previously invisible and inaudible. The words are how the inner life materializes. And for us, the words are how who God is has materialized for us. So God is drawing near to us now in his word. He's drawing near to us even now in this Bible right here filled with who he is. The revelation of who he is and who he wants to show us that he is. He's drawn as near as we need right now. The spirit indwells in us and the Bible is active and alive and speaking to us about who God is. What we say and how we say it reveals what we have received. And what is it that we have received? We have received life abundantly and continuously. And so long as our relationship with God exists, we should never stop talking about it, right? One of the worst things you could ever hear as a spouse is somebody going, oh, I had no idea you were married, <laughs> right? Can you imagine like, oh, you never talk about your family or your wife or any of those things. I didn't know you were a father. Um, how many of y'all have ever heard? I didn't know you go to church. I didn't know you were religious. Right? Think about what language reveals. Language reveals commitment, relationship, interests. My buddy Kyle is always saying that I am an evangelist for the things I've become momentarily obsessed with. Oh, dude, you've got to get this new gadget or you've got to buy this book. And he's like, all right, I'm going to wait a couple weeks. We'll see if you still love it as much as you do now. And then maybe I'll, I might buy it. But he says, I just can't help it. I want to tell everybody about this album I just heard or this movie I just watched. People are nodding their heads. I'm sorry. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> I, I speak out of what I'm passionate about. We can't help it, right? 
And the Bible recognizes this in saying that part of coming to faith is recognizing and speaking out what we believe in. Hold on, let me see if I can make that a little bit bigger on the screen for y'all. Whoa, look at that. Romans 10, 9 through 10. If you confess with your mouth, literally if you give words, language to the thing you believe to be true, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. It's not an either or, it's a both and, right? Even that word believe in verse 9 is so important for us because it's not just word as we learn, it's also deed. We respond in kind with how God responds, or how God speaks to us. God speaks to us in the word, and he speaks to us in action. This is what the Shema, the Deuteronomy verse from earlier, is referencing. We are responding to God in word and deed. This is how we love him who lavishes his love on us. We confess, we say, we speak life that we have received, and we believe it to the point of activity. This is what fear of God means. If you fear the Lord, you follow him. It's not just being afraid or terror. It's not those things. It's trust. It's trust in the midst of recognizing your place in front of the Almighty. Fear of the Lord is word and deed. It is faith and fidelity. This is the kind of worship that the Father desires of us. Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, you've no doubt heard this verse, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Worship is an identifier. It, it marks us as not of this world. And God says that how we, we live proclaims who he is. What we say and what we do is critical in and out of the gathering. This is worship. Again, we're not even talking about sets yet or music or transitions or prayer, any of those things. This is worship in totality because this is the kind of worship that God commands. Here's our last point. Worship is our means and our end. It's our past. We recognize what God has done. It's a present. We trust that that is the same God we follow now, and we believe in the promises that are yet to be fulfilled. It's our joy and our duty. We're called to be, and you've probably heard this as well, a royal priesthood. 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Yesterday I worked um, on seminary, I had to finish this book called Enter His Courts with Praise by Andrew Hill. It's a really, really good book. It's all about Old Testament worship. Uh, I, I had to read like 100 pages of it yesterday, so it's all a blur. But I do remember this, that the concept of priesthood is important. The, the high priest is who Jesus is, right? This, is, this priest is responsible for redemption and atonement. This is not our work as the priesthood, but we do participate in the priesthood of believers in four ways. Administration of worship, instruction of worship, pro proclamation of who God is, and the invitation to participate in that worship among his people. This is not my responsibility as the worship leader at ACC. This is our responsibility as the priesthood of believers is to administer worship in our lives. 
is to instruct others, our children, our neighbors, new believers, in what worship is and entails, and then to proclaim God in everything we do. And then the most joyous part, to invite others to use their gifts in the body and invite others to come to know this God that we worship. This is what it means to be a priesthood. We are a worshiping people. We are growing and going together. We are ascending the hill of the Lord together. This is why it's critical that we get worship right. One of my favorite parts of this chapter, Bob Coughlin talks about four misconceptions about worship, and we're gonna talk about those at our table in a moment. But what we need to understand is that worship is both a matter of discipleship and evangelism. When we make worship about us, or believe that we start the process of worship, we corrupt it, and we lose both our identity and our witness. I'll repeat that. Worship is about discipleship and evangelism. And when we lose the plot, when we forget that it's God who starts it, enables it, directs it, guides it, we lose our identity in the process and we lose our witness. People don't want to come to faith in Caleb. They should definitely not want to come to faith in Caleb. People need to come to faith in God. And so my responsibility becomes to proclaim him, to be a priest in this priesthood of believers. This is what letting God take the lead does in our worship. So i got a couple things up there. Just three things for us. Letting God take the lead in worship sanctifies our worship, it deepens our expression, and it enables unity. I'll say a few things about each one of those very quickly as we move on. The first thing letting God take the lead does is it sanctifies our worship. You know, all throughout the Old Testament, one of the big concerns is with false worship with idolatry. This is when the journey halts, right? When that, when that ascension up the hill with the body of believers halts because of distraction or worry or trust in the wrong things. And the Israelites, even in the midst of all their provision, struggle with this constantly. Even in the great provision, right? The, the first temple that was built was beautiful. It was incredibly immaculate, adorned and festooned. That's a great word. With all of these beautiful things and artistry and craft, and yet it became more than a symbol of God's presence. It became in itself the ends and the manifestation of who he was. And so the temple became an idol in itself. And God recognizes this. We can make our own idols even without a temple or a tabernacle or some other object in our worship. We can make the idol of expression, right? I love worship that is expressive. Worship should be expressive. Worship is expressive all throughout the Old Testament and in the New Testament. But if we stop at expression as the ultimate end of worship, we have made expression the God that we come to serve. And so what we need to recover is an understanding of worship that lets God lead it, knowing that God does care about our feelings and God does want to steward our emotions but he transcends all of those things, which is ultimately to our benefit. Because even when the emotions aren't there to support the story of the gospel that we believe holds us, or the feelings aren't there as we sing or read the truths that we cling to, we know that the truth goes on anyway. This is why expression is important, but it can't be our idol. Neither can cognitive activity, understanding the truth, right? We can tame God by thinking that we have figured everything out in the scriptures or that we only worship when we fully com comprehend who God is, even though scripture tells us his ways are so far beyond our ways. 
This is why last week we said one of the most important things, or last month, we said one of the most important things to recognize is that God's concept of worship is so much bigger than ours. And that's awesome. I'm glad that that is the case because there's room to learn and there's room to grow. That said, as we talk about expression, God does care about expression. And worship where God takes the lead deepens that expression. When we follow the story of the gospel faithfully, when we illustrate it well, when we use the talents here in this room to proclaim who he is artistically and with care, when we think about transitions in a way that is completely obedient to telling that story well, it enhances the expression of worship. It gives people a proper picture of who God is. So you think about it this way. If all we talked about was grace in church and gave people no concept of sin, do they understand what grace truly is? No, right? It's like a starting the movie on the climax of the story. And then you're like, well, I mean, I guess that's cool. The person was saved. I don't know how long they were kidnapped or whatever. I was thinking of Liam Neeson. Sorry. <laughs> if, or in church, if all we talk about is sinful nature and we rarely talk about grace, does grace shine in the light of who we are? Or do people walk away weary? Walk away weary. They lost a sense of identity. We, we need to present both in the story of the gospel because by doing so, we can magnify who God is. Grace is put in its proper light. It's scandalous uh, as, as we hear. It is, uh, it's outlandish, the grace of God in light of our sin. We should, we should not fall into either ditch, but we should keep these things Intention, And that's a really important word for us, tension. The final thing letting God take the lead does is it enables our unity. The worship of church communities is filled with tension. It's an unfortunate thing, but it's a true thing. And this is because the worship of the people of God, even outside of our gatherings, is filled with tension, right? Some of that is uh, is simply who we are, that, that we are stuck in the... Uh, in the middle of the now and not yet. We are saved by grace right now and we await the fullness of receiving who God is when the new kingdom comes. And we look forward to that day even as we are in this day right now with our struggles. There's a tension there. And again, how many of y'all uh, play a stringed instrument? What happens if you pull too tightly to one end to the string? It pops, right? Or if you go too loose, right? Then it slaps. Then it sounds bad, right? The best way for your guitar to sound good is to get the balance right. And that's what we are to do. Churches get into problems when they are confronted with false dichotomies, right? And so uh, I've, I've seen and encountered a bunch as a, a worship leader and friend of other worship leaders here in town. The, the dichotomy between... You know, we want flexibility in our service, but we also want our service ordered. So, um, well, if there's any kind of like formula, then the spirit's not in it. Or if it's all spirit, then what are people learning or walking away with? These are false dichotomies. Like God wants both of those things. Worship in the Old Testament was ordered, but it was also spontaneous, often in the gathering. And so what we tend to do is we tend to pick our preference and we tend to elevate that as holier or more proper. And the truth is God wants both. And so what happens when we let God's picture of worship guide what we do, what we say, how we act, it changes the way we approach. We're more open to things that might feel culturally different to us, but knowing that they are acceptable and true and good to God opens up our opportunity to participate. This is what our churches need. This is what people call worship renewal. 
It's, it's when communities come with an openness to that, uh, of refusing to play by the game of false dichotomies and realizing that there's only one dichotomy, and it is this. Is this worship God's or ours? That's the only dichotomy that exists. If the answer is ours, then it's false worship. It's only about us. If this is God's worship, then it compels us to learn more about who God is and take more care to tell who God is, as we said in the priesthood of believers, to instruct on who God is, to proclaim in greater ways and more artistic ways and more expressive ways who God is and to invite people to participate in that story together. I asked you this question um, about who, uh, this question in the icebreakers. If you could ask Jesus one question about worship, what would it be? Before we get to that, um, I was in a, a class in seminary years ago with a guy named Zach Hicks. He wrote a book called The Worship Pastor. It is an excellent book. And uh, we were having a conversation about service elements and, and liturgy and order and all those, those things. And he said that uh, what would often happen and I could be paraphrasing, but we'll never know because no one wrote this down. But it's good. It's a good point. He said in their meetings, anytime somebody would introduce something that was new to their liturgy or their order, inevitably someone would ask the question, does this expose any idolatry in us? Why did we add this change? Is it ultimately for the benefit of the people in worship that they might know better who God is? Or is this exposing some idolatry in us? Do we like this feeling more than we like the formation of this element? Or does it conceal idolatry, right? Are we, are we doing this in the service to proclaim a false sense of humility or to proclaim what we do under the guise that look at what God's doing here? Um, and that's a really tough question. And I've learned to ask that question in my own life. Have I said yes to this thing um, because it makes me look better or because God is asking me to do this thing? It's a, it's a delicate question. Um, it's a question about idolatry. It's a question about proper worship. And so in the vein of that, I was in a seminary class in January, and my professor, Danelle Franklin, brilliant woman, she uh, opened the conversation up, and she said, you know, as we finish today, if you could ask Jesus one question about worship, what would it be? And so everybody kind of sat, really stern looks. And I raised my hand, being a teacher's pet in the class, I was like, a really good, good question, she's gonna like it. And um, I said, um, you know, there's definitely weekends where I would just like him to say, what do you want me to, to sing or to play? Like, you know, what's the, what's the thing I need to do this weekend? So she listened and she goes, that's a, that's a good question. Because um, I, I think I used the phrase, you know, it keeps me up at night. She goes, I think you just need to put songs in. And she's like, that, that express what you know to be true. And you need to let, just rest in knowing that God's going to do what he's going to do on a Sunday morning. You can be faithful to that. And so I was like, okay. And then she would, I said, well, what would you ask him? And she said, if I could ask Jesus one question about worship, I would ask him this. When were you most honored by my worship? I was like, whoa. And then she said, and I would sneak in a second question, can you teach me to do that more often? And that, to me, set the framework for what worship really is. It's like, I'm worried about my little task and my little piece of worship and making that honoring to him and it forces me into overthinking or, or overfeeling or underfeeling or underthinking, whatever that might be. It forces me into these false dichotomies and it robs me of the joy of obedience. It's all command without the blessing. And what I really should be asking is, what is most honoring right now? That's a question of humility. It's a question of submission. 
It's a question that changes your approach and it lets God lead worship. So uh, I'm going to pray as we conclude the teaching portion. I have some questions for you all to go through at your table uh, as you continue this discussion. But let's pray now as we continue. God, we thank you that you are the worship leader. That your son goes before us, he takes us by the hand, and he walks us into your presence where we might worship with freedom, with joy. And God, right now we confess the ways where we have lost the plot, where we have made worship about us or about our preferences or about our personal desires and styles and all those things that have their place, God, but are not you. We confess idolatry uh, of preference, idolatry of stoking our own needs or seeking feeling more than formation. And so God, right now, uh, as the familiar refrain goes, we pray that you would return us to a heart of worship, that you would remind us that worship started with you calling our name and telling us who you are. Would you remind us that there is freedom and that there is joy in responding to that and to chasing after that? Would we never be satisfied with how much we know about who you are right now when we wake up every morning desiring to know you more and to proclaim what we learn and what we know to be true in every aspect of our lives. We thank you that worship is all-encompassing. Uh, we thank you that we are never in a moment or a place where your presence is not with us. So would you remind us that there are opportunities to worship and to love and to proclaim all around us in everything we do. We thank you that you are the God who is with us. We thank you that you have offered us this proposal, this blessing is command. And so today, God, we say yes. And we respond with a life of obedience and faith and joy in our worship. We pray these things in the name of Jesus who makes it all possible. Amen.